Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Divine Lantern. I'm Alana from the Antiochian Christian Orthodox Youth and we thank you for tuning in today. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower and enrich. This episode we start a new seven-part series on the Ecumenical Councils where we will be joined by Father Theophan who will give a talk on the First Council of Nicaea. We'll also hear a reading from our Orthodox Library and answer a question sent in by one of our listeners. Remember that if you'd like one of your questions on the faith answered, please send us a voice memo to tdl at antiochian.org.au. Let's begin and we hope you enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Greetings, beloved faithful in Christ. It is a great honor and privilege for me to be speaking to you today about the First Council of Nicaea. This will be one in a series of reflections offered on the Divine Lantern podcast entitled, the seven councils. I would like to extend my heartfelt thanks and appreciation to His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios for giving me his blessing to offer these words to you, as well as everyone who contributes to help produce these edifying podcasts, and to all of you, the listeners for your continued feedback and love. I wish you all a blessed strength, always. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, we are told of a particular council that takes place in Jerusalem. There was an issue that arose within the Christian milieu of the time regarding if Gentiles had to first adhere to the Mosaic customs of the law before having access to salvation in Christ. After some discussion as a group, it was agreed that this was not necessary and only placed extra burden on the adherents of the faith. In a letter which was sent out after the meeting, the apostles noted that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that these certain decisions were made. And that's in Acts 15, 28. This is the same spirit and conciliar or synodal function that carried through many centuries later when another difficulty arose within the life of the church, namely that of the heresy of Arianism. It is now the 4th century AD, and Christianity is spreading throughout the known world. A particular individual, Arius, begins teaching that Jesus Christ did not dwell with the Father from unto all eternity, rather was created. This did not line up with the general consensus and belief of the church, as revealed through the person of Christ when he ministered and lived on earth. 
Therefore, the first ecumenical council was convened in the year 325 AD in a region called Nicaea. There were 318 bishops in attendance who had traveled from all across the Roman Empire as well as the emperor, St. Constantine the Great. The council began with prayer, asking and beseeching God to help with the decisions needed to be made regarding the faith. Then discussions ensued amongst those present, and when the final decisions were made, there was a correspondence written and distributed to all the churches. These form the canons of the councils, as well as, in this particular case, the first part of the Nicene Creed, which we recite in our prayers often, the statement of faith, I believe in one God. Thus, the false teachings of Arius were refuted, and a number of other concerns addressed. This was a positive outcome. However, as we will see in later sessions on this series, further false teachings and difficulties continued to arise in the life of the church. So subsequent councils needed to be held, discussing different issues pertaining to the time, but also key dogmatic teachings which would remain with us till this present day. Thus, we do not only see these councils as a certain or certain events that occurred in history, rather as events that still pertain to the life of the faithful to this day. Therefore, on this note, we must discuss more fully, at least for this week's podcast, the significance of this council to our life. First, it must be said that dogma, doctrine, or official teachings within the church should not be void of a lived experience. St. Basil the Great, who was born just after the time of this first council, states in one of his letters to his spiritual children, as we were baptized, so we profess our belief. As we profess our belief, so also we offer praise. Who listening now has been baptized? If you were baptized and initiated into the faith, then St. Basil is saying you must profess your belief. The belief we express has been given to us by the Lord. The results of the councils were just simply to put them down in concrete language. Thus, if you have been baptized and have belief, the results of the ecumenical councils are talking directly to you. But according to St. Basil, does it end here? Well, no, because as a result of this, we must offer up praise. Therefore, every day we must thank God for all that he has given us. We must attempt to draw closer to God and by doing so, become more acquainted with the official teachings of our church. This will encourage us to express our faith within the worshipping community or worshipping setting. 
attending church on a regular basis, praying alongside others and being around others. This is what it means to be communal, to come together, to pray, discuss matters pertaining to the church and offer up praise via the worshipping community. The councils have set guideposts for us related to this, in particular as to who we worship, namely a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The classic opening to St. John's Gospel. This is a revealed truth, thus by Arius teaching that Christ was essentially created is completely contrary to this. The church could not accept it. It lived for so many years, not having to refine such teachings. It was simply a lived truth. But when contrary teachings arose, that's when the church needed to act, and it did via the seven great councils, which we'll hear more and more about in the upcoming weeks. However, today... The church is also calling for you to act. The church is calling for you to know your faith, to know who your God is, and to live this out in your life day by day. Thus, let us turn to Christ, who is the true light, sanctifying all things coming into the world, and ask for his assistance and help in achieving this. The participants of the councils grappled with the faith. Let us also continue to grapple with this great and awesome mystery placed before us, namely the mystery of the Holy Trinity, asking who God is for us, how he acts in the world, and how we are called to be with him always, now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Theophan. And now for the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our Holy Neptic Fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. Man alone is capable of communion with God. For to man alone among the living creatures does God speak, at night through dreams, by day through the intellect. And he uses every means to foretell and prefigure the future blessings that will be given to those worthy of him. St. Anthony the Great Unexpected trials are sent by God to teach us to practice the ascetic life and they lead us to repentance even when we are reluctant. St. Mark the Ascetic Not only does St. Paul instruct us to pray without ceasing and to persist in prayer, but so also does the Lord when he says that God will vindicate those who cry out to him day and night and counsels us to watch and pray. We must therefore pray always and not lose heart. St. Simeon Metaphrastus
On September 17, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we continue to celebrate the elevation of the Holy Cross and we commemorate the martyrs Sophia and her daughters Faith, Love and Hope. When Sophia's faith, hope and love were beheaded, then was wisdom justified of all her children. On the 17th, they beheaded love, faith and hope. This blessed family lived and suffered in Rome during the reign of Emperor Hadrian. Sophia was wise, as her name implies. She was widowed and had established herself and her daughters well in the Christian faith. When Hadrian's persecuting hand extended over the virtuous home of Sophia, Faith was only 12 years old, Hope 10 and Love 9. Brought before the Emperor, these four held each other's hands like a woven wreath, humbly but steadfastly confessed their faith in Christ and refused to offer sacrifices to the pagan idol Artemis. Before their suffering, the mother encouraged her daughters to endure to the end. Your heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is eternal health, inexpressible beauty and eternal life. When your bodies are slain by torture, he will clothe you in incorruption and the wounds on your bodies will shine in the heavens as stars. The torturers inflicted cruel torments on each daughter and killed them. Sophia took the bodies of her daughters and honorably buried them. She remained at their grave for three days and nights, praying to God. Then she gave her spirit to God, flying off to paradise, where the blessed souls of her daughters awaited her. By the intercessions of thy saints, O Christ God, have mercy upon us. Amen. What is the Nicene Creed, and why is it important? On the 14th of September, we commemorate the Feast of the Elevation of the Holy Cross. The Nicene Creed, also known as the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, holds a significant place in Christian history and doctrine. Its formulation dates back to the first ecumenical council held in Nicaea in 325 AD and was further developed and clarified at the second ecumenical council in Constantinople in 381 AD. The creed is often referred to as the symbol of faith in the Orthodox Church, as it represents the unity and expression of the Christian faith. In the early church, various creeds were used for baptismal purposes. These served as statements of belief and were recited by individuals as a way to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ. The earliest confession of faith was centered around the belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah and Lord. However, as the church grew and faced challenges to its doctrine, Different regions of the church developed their own creeds, each reflecting their unique theological perspectives and concerns. 
However, it was the Nicene Creed that gained prominence during the 4th century controversy surrounding the nature of the Son of God. This controversy, known as the Arian Controversy, revolved around the question of whether Jesus was the same substance as God the Father or of a similar substance. At the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the bishops and theologians gathered to address this controversy and establish a unified understanding of the nature of Christ. The creed that emerged from this council affirmed the full divinity of the Son, stating that Jesus was begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. This declaration of the Son's equality with the Father was a crucial step in solidifying the orthodox understanding of the Trinity. The Nicene Creed, in its entirety, is a powerful summary of the Christian faith. It proclaims the incarnation, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, highlighting the central events of the Christian story. It also affirms the belief in the one, holy Catholic, which means universal, and apostolic church. In orthodoxy, the creed holds a central place in the liturgy and is recited by the faithful as a statement of their faith and a proclamation of the church's beliefs. It stands as a testament to the early church's commitment to preserving and clarifying the faith and continues to serve as a formal statement of faith in baptism and as an integral part of the divine liturgy in the Orthodox Church. Its words echo throughout the centuries, reminding believers of the foundational truths of the Orthodox faith. And now a reading from our Orthodox Library. Acquiring the Mind of Christ by Archimandrite Sergius Bowyer Chapter 1 Liturgy as Life It must be stated and emphasized that Orthodox Christian life is, by definition, a liturgical life. To fail to recognize this is to fail to find the key to the mystery of Orthodox Christianity. Professor Constantine Scuteris explains this unbreakable connection between salvation and worship. In the tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Doctrine and worship are inseparable. Worship is, in a certain sense, doctrinal testimony, reference to the events of revelation. Thus, dogmas are not abstract ideas in and for themselves, but revealed and saving truths and realities intended to bring mankind into communion with God. One could say without hesitation that, according to orthodox understanding, the fullness of theological thought is found in the worship of the Church. This is why the term orthodoxy is understood by many, not as right opinion, but as right doxology, that is, right worship. The liturgy is meant to become our life, and the continual entry into the new life that is granted to us in Christ. The Church's teachings are inseparable from the liturgy, and all of her theological definitions that she proclaims, such as the Creed, are confirmed by and revealed through the liturgy. It is primarily through this liturgical life that we begin to enter the corporate, dogmatic, visionary consciousness of the Church. Father Georges Florovsky once explained that the Church is first of all a worshipping community. Worship comes first, and then doctrine and discipline. The Church has not grown out of dogmatic formulas, nor even Holy Scripture, but out of right worship, uniting us into one spirit in the one body of Christ. 
We must always know and remember what it means to be orthodox. Our whole life is to become a liturgy, an anaphora, a constant offering up of our talents, our time, our hearts and our world to Christ. Our life can become a prayer when we continually turn our hearts to Christ and his saints for help. For what is prayer if not the turning of the heart to dialogue with God, rather than a circular monologue with our ego and passions? In this way, we will not only go to the liturgy once or twice a week in the church building, but rather we bring the liturgy into every part of our lives, calling down the Holy Spirit to sanctify our families, our workplaces, our cars, our homes, and even our enemies. The life of Christ that is given to us can only become ours when we, in imitation of the Lord, also offer up our life and our heart, that we might be able to receive Him. There must be an exchange of lives. When we receive the Eucharist, there must be a tremendous effort in our own life to become like unto Christ Himself, especially by being obedient to His words. Without the willingness to offer ourselves on the altar of sacrifice, to carry our cross, to forsake all that we have, it will be certain that we will not have room enough within ourselves to receive and contain His infinite and eternal life. The mystery of the cross working in our life, when we are personally affixed to it, is God stretching us, that we can contain more of His grace, that one day we might be able to contain not only Him, but all of mankind in our heart. Our task is to acquire the mind of Christ, not by imitation, but through an impartation and participation. This only happens through the Church by grace, informing our heart so that we understand the world in and through Christ. The only way to acquire this is through living the liturgy. Our personal interior prayer life must be strong and joined to dedicated regular attendance at all of the services. We will never have time for the Church and the things of God unless we make time, prioritizing our life so as to put God first. If we say that we love God, that means, says Saint Siloan the Athenite, that we pray. There are two sides of the life of prayer which are inseparably bound, personal and corporate. We need both if we are to make progress, for they both nourish each other, strengthening and reinforcing each other respectively. Today is the day of salvation and the time is far spent. It is time to awake from the slumber of the world and to put on Christ, beseeching him to grant us a continual renewal of our repentance and of our life in the church. It is time to put spiritual capital into our bank account in eternity, so that when we fail, we will be received into the eternal habitations. The church's liturgy and a life of personal prayer prepare us to live in God's presence, to endure God's presence and to love God's presence. We must make this preparation in this world, otherwise, in the world to come, there will be no more time for us to make the appropriate adjustment to that which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. We may not ever find the perfect prayer that a few in a generation will reach. However, the liturgy is perfect hypostatic prayer. Elder Zacharias of Essex tells us that the energy of this prayer upholds the universe. We need not despair of our lack of perfection in prayer, but rather hasten to enter into the Church's perfect hypostatic prayer, which saves us and the world. Our work as Orthodox is liturgical, serving and living the liturgy, and through this 
bringing the world into the church. We can never underestimate the power of the liturgy and its ability to transform and inform the heart. Our primary tool for evangelism to those inside and outside the church is serving the liturgy and the services of the church. It is this which constitutes the sanctification of the world and grants us an opportunity to participate in the holiness of God himself. Therefore, we must always remember that the church and its liturgy are the kingdom, the world to come, present in our midst today. Saint Nicholas Cabasila says, What is the kingdom if not this holy bread and this holy cup? We must beware of supposing that heaven is something that only is in the future. As Metropolitan Hierotheos Vlachos states, We Orthodox are not waiting for the end of history and the end of time, but through living in Christ we are running to meet the end of history and thus already living the life expected after the Second Coming. This is what the saints show us. This is what the monastics remind us. This is what we are called to. In the Church, the Kingdom is present and revealed, but yet to be consummated. This is the Church. This is the Liturgy. This is our new life in Christ which He calls us to. Come all things have been prepared. Our task is to do what we can and leave the rest to God. Our part may be a small offering, but it might very well be the widow's two mites which purchase for us the Kingdom. Thank you for tuning in to another installment of the Divine Lantern. For all the latest news and updates about our Archdiocese, please visit our website at www.antiochian.org.au. We hope you have a blessed day and we'll catch you all next week.